According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 12 is our scripture once again. Join me in John chapter 12. Remote server is requesting access to Windows Explorer on your PC. What is that? What is remote server? I don't, I don't know what that is. Windows Explorer is trying to open a connection to the Internet. And now everything froze. All right, well, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word and the privilege that we have to assemble together. We ask for your blessing on our study, Father, in the uh, Life of Christ series. We thank you for uh, the lessons you've already taught us over these years. And we're looking forward, Father, as we're working our way day by day through the Passion Week. Uh, Father, we pray for this day in our study of John chapter 12 that you would open our eyes to your truth. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is episode three in Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem, the attraction of sacrifice. And uh, John chapter 12, verses 20 through 50. Verses 20 through 50. We got a good jump on it, I think, last week. And uh, I want to get right back into it and then gain some ground as it relates to um, the glory here that the Father is going to bestow upon the Son and uh, the resolution to the angelic conflict that we see uh, referenced here in these verses. Verse 20 says, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Then these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, so the arrival of these Greeks was a trigger in uh, the recognition of Jesus Christ as to the coming of the hour. For all these years, uh, we've been reading, His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And they uh, different uh, attempts on his life, and he'd be delivered, he'd escape. And Scripture would say, His hour had not yet come. But with the arrival of these Greeks, we now have the statement, the hour has come. And he is in the midst of the Passion Week. This is Tuesday of the Passion Week. He will go to the cross on Friday. So he's within 72 hours of, uh, of his work as the, uh, as the sacrifice for sin. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, there's a whole lot of doctrine there. I've uh, actually reserved um, a further expansion on some of those things about loving your life and losing it and things for a later point in the life of Christ. But we can uh, discuss that here a little bit. If you're keeping track of the outline, 
I, I am not able to put the slideshow up today. As this is uh, not cooperating. We'll try one more time. That didn't look good. That looked like a hijacking of my system. <laughs> that doesn't have me pleased here this morning. All right. Point one, the Pharisees' dismay at Jesus' fruitful ministry. Look at verse 19. Even before we begin this episode, the verse that, that concluded the previous paragraph here in John 12. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world, the world has gone after him. And the Pharisees are dismayed with the uh, activities on the previous Monday, on, on Palm Monday, when the triumphal entry took place and the children are singing Hosanna and, and they feel like they failed. Why have they not murdered him yet? How is it that he successfully got here alive? How is it that he's here in full public view? And uh, that frustration will continue to build and continue to build. And um, they're terrified of, of possibly being forced to murder him in full public view during the, the Passover itself, which is why they were so delighted to have Judas come and uh, offer to, uh, to betray him in a, in a secret fashion. And uh, how thrilled they are that they're going to have the opportunity to do that um, on uh, one of these evenings coming up. Of course, we know it's going to be Thursday evening uh, around midnight in the Garden of Gethsemane. So they're dismayed there. Look, the world has gone after him. And recording that statement here in this text, the Apostle John then relates the event of some Greeks, some Gentiles that were coming. And um, it doesn't say exactly how many. It just says some. Okay, that's neither many nor few. Uh, I don't think it could have been as few as uh, two or three or even six. Uh, that, that would have been rendered as a few Greeks. But this is some Greeks, probably a dozen, possibly a couple dozen. You get beyond that and then you start to approach what would be considered many or a crowd. So say there's a dozen in this delegation and they have traveled here for the purpose of uh, asking him this question. They've come to worship at the feast. God-fearing Greeks. Uh, they're not called proselytes, so maybe they hadn't gone through that whole process, but they definitely have a fear of the Lord. They definitely know Yahweh as the creator of heaven and the earth. They're coming to the temple of Yahweh in order to worship at the Passover season. And uh, whatever the uh, contact was with Philip, is, we're not told. We're simply told that Philip was their point of contact. Uh, Philip is a Gentile name. It is a Greek name. So possibly he had uh, Greek uh, family, possibly had Greek business dealings and so forth. Uh, Bethsaida of Galilee also is on the boundary uh, at the edge of Galilee towards the Greek region of Decapolis. And so, uh, again, this possibility of trade and business and other connections between Philip and, the, and these particular Greeks. Um, other details, for example, Philip did not bring them directly to Jesus first off, but um, went through Andrew to, uh, to do so. Philip came and told Andrew, and, and Andrew came and told Jesus. And so um, it's an interesting chain of, uh, of activity there. The text does not record the specific questions that they asked. Does that bug you at all? It happens occasionally. In fact, it happens fairly frequently. Uh, Jesus answered them in verse 23. You see that? Jesus answered them. Well, what, what did they ask? <laughs> okay. And that's actually fairly common. Um, there is a, a bit of an idiom there. Uh, really, it reflects more of a Hebraism. 
they obviously had said something, and it was probably more substantial than, hello, we're a bunch of Greeks and we want to meet you. Uh, clearly they came and there was some conversation that's not recorded. It's not important for that conversation to be recorded. But it is a response to whatever it is they asked him about that he then uh, speaks these words that are recorded. So he answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Again, the arrival of the Greeks is the trigger. It is the event. And we don't, uh, we can imagine perhaps uh, that, that Christ had some um, warnings. Uh, it was routine for the father to warn the prophets, you know, about this time tomorrow. Uh, you know, a man's going to come looking for his donkeys and you're going to take him and you're going to anoint him as king over Israel. Okay. So you can imagine maybe something similar happened where the, the father uh, advised the son about this time tomorrow. A delegation of Greeks is going to arrive and uh, Philip and uh, Andrew will be bringing them to you. And here's the message you are to deliver to them. See. And so he recognizes this is his signal. The hour has come. If uh, you hold your finger here and understand this was necessary, 1 Timothy 3.16, 1 Timothy 3.16, although for three and a half years of ministry we've observed that the majority of what our Savior did was um, oriented towards Israel, coming to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, uh, it was necessary for him to I have ministry towards the uh, the Gentiles. First Timothy 3.16 is the mystery of godliness, the hymn that is written. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the Gentiles. Proclaimed among the Gentiles or the nations. Same word. Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And uh, I believe that the episode we're studying here today, the arrival of this Greek delegation, is the fulfillment that makes this song possible, particularly that phrase there, proclaimed among the Gentiles. Uh, every previous episode that we've studied uh, related to Gentiles has always been a singularity, always a single individual. Uh, the Syrophoenician woman, for example, a single individual. The, the centurion, a single individual. The, the nobleman, and uh, of course I think he was Jewish. Uh, but the, the Gentiles that he encountered here and there throughout the ministry were single individuals. Here now is the first time we have a delegation. We have a large group, some Gentiles, plural. And it's remarkable because when it comes time for um, the church to come into existence uh, after Pentecost and when believers start expanding beyond Jerusalem, uh, the very first non-Jewish church that ever gets planted is a Greek church. And it's Greek believers from Cyprus and from Antioch. And they established that first beachhead, the first local church, a Greek local church in Antioch. And um, is that a coincidence? Is that uh, an accident? Uh, why didn't the first Gentile church show up among the, among the Arabs or among the Edomites or among the Egyptians? Why was it among the Greeks? Well, here we see this delegation of Greeks, for example. And so it does make for an interesting study. We might have some cooperation here. Thing I ought to do if I could disable my Wi-Fi, then it won't keep trying to get to the internet, right? Well, let's see. And so um, 
We gave this to you as a point last week under 1D. Previous encounters featured an individual Gentile, but this episode appears to be unique and contributes to the common confession of the church, 1 Timothy 3.16. Jesus is not just simply a Jewish Savior. He is the Savior of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. See, salvation is of the Jews, absolutely. He was born of the, you know, the, the tribe of Judah, of the nation of Israel, and his primary ministry was to Israel, but what he accomplishes in his death is worldwide. It is for all mankind. Is that not on? Okay. So previous encounters feature an individual Gentile, but this episode appears to be unique. Contributes to the common confession of the church. All right. Moving on to the next section, then verses 27 through 43, Jesus responds to his soul trouble. He walked away from that message, hating it, (laughs) troubled because of it. Now my soul has become troubled. My soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Jesus responds to his soul trouble by engaging in a paterological prayer focus. He takes it back to the Father. He starts focusing on why the Father's put him here, what the Father's achieving, how the Father will be pleased, how the Father will be glorified. A paterological prayer focus on the Father's purpose and the Father's glory. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And this becomes our example. We can follow this example. We should learn from this example. And I think far too believers do. I think far too many, uh, their, their gut reaction to every test the Father assigns is take it away. I don't like it. And that's not what the Father would have for us to do. Um, we're going to see in Second Corinthians that Paul wanted the thorn in the flesh gone. Well, uh, I can appreciate the fact that Paul didn't like it, but the Father assigned it. And the, uh, the principle is that grace is sufficient. And we need to learn that in these assignments that we have the opportunity to not only receive the sufficient grace, but to testify to having received that sufficient grace. It becomes our testimony. It becomes our role in manifesting God's grace to this world. The message to the Gentiles brought the coming crucifixion into undeniable soul trouble. Undeniable soul trouble. This was the event that, and he's going to describe it several times as well after this event too. He will continue to testify to his trouble. He'll tell his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane that his soul is troubled to the point of death. He'll ask his disciples to pray with him. He gets frustrated that they keep falling asleep. Why can't you stay awake even one hour? Uh, He warns them, pray that you not enter into temptation. I think in context it's of this nature. For the flesh is willing, but the uh, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. We're going to see some of those... Uh, subsequent episodes here today. But it brought the coming crucifixion into undeniable soul trouble. Even when you know it's the will of God, even when you know it's part of His plan, there are occasions when we just don't like it. And it hurts. And it leaves us in our humanity troubled. And uh, I think it's no... I think it's a disservice to try to deny that. Or to try to not teach the Scriptures and the reality of what the Scripture says. Scripture says that his soul was troubled. That doesn't mean he was carnal, because he never sinned. And it doesn't mean you're carnal if you find yourself in soul, um, having your soul troubled. It just means you're human, and it means that he's putting you through a test, and it means that you're going to have to either cling to him to get you through that test, or um, 
you're going to crash and burn, peel out, and try to find some other way to avoid your problems. And here's what he does. He starts to consider alternatives. What shall I say? What shall I say? And so I, I appreciate this as well. The troubled soul brings Jesus to a point of hypothetical consideration of alternatives. Hypothetical consideration of alternatives. And once again, that when this happens, it's not carnal. That Jesus doesn't sin in this process. We consider, wouldn't it be better if uh, I ran away from this problem? Wouldn't it be better if, if uh, we could find something else to, to solve this? Okay. And occasionally we do this and, and we, we even will voice things that are completely insane. <laughs> things that we would never consider under normal circumstances if we weren't under such soul pressure. It wouldn't even cross our mind. We wouldn't even think about it. But this is what happens under spiritual testing. This is what happens under soul turmoil. The unthinkable becomes thinkable. And you start to think about alternatives that would not be um, considered under any other set of circumstances, you understand. And so is it carnal when, you, when it crosses your mind? The idea of, uh, of something horrible crosses your mind. You think, well, that, was, that would solve this problem, wouldn't it? Okay. Do I need to illustrate? I mean, you understand what's what? I mean, I think, you know, husbands and wives and marriage and there's bumps here and there and they, they, they're they hating the conflict and they're hating the ugliness and then they just say, well, you know, goodness, let's just throw it away. Give up. Walk away. Divorce is an answer. Okay? You wouldn't consider that under normal circumstances and you certainly wouldn't consider that under the filling of the Holy Spirit and, and so forth. But... When you're in turmoil and the idea crosses your mind and as a volitional creature, you, you look at that and say, you know what? I could choose to do that. I could choose to do that. That's as far as you've got to go with that because if you take it any further, then you cross into, into the carnality. You see how that works with the conception. The temptation is not a sin. And identifying that the potential to make that choice is not a sin. Because the moment you, you uh, identify that that choice is a sin, then you, you have to let it go. You have to reject it. And that's what he does here. He, he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Jesus could do that. He could bail. He could ask the Father to, to switch to plan B. Except Jesus has to recognize, you know what? There is no plan B. This is the Father's plan. The Father doesn't have a plan B. You either line up with the Father's plan or you rebel in carnality in evil and darkness. He says, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. And so, if, if you're considering divorce, you're considering walking away from church, you're considering something that's just unthinkable, just you have to stop and say, you know what? That's out of the will of God. That's not His will. That's not what the Bible would have for me to do. And so, I'm going to drive that from my thinking because it doesn't qualify under Philippians 4.8. All right. I'm not to let my mind dwell on these things because it's not right. It's not pure. It's not lovely. It's not excellent. All right. So bringing Jesus to a point of hypothetical consideration of alternatives. God is a savior, but he doesn't save from his sovereign assignments. What shall I say? Save me from this hour. <laughs> like asking your kidnapper to rescue you. Your kidnapper is the one that kidnapped you. 
Okay? Or someone that robbed you at gunpoint asking them for a loan. You know, that's, that's not why they're doing what they're doing. God put you in this condition. Why would you ask the one who put you in this condition to get you out of it? He has a reason for putting you there. He has a, a purpose to be achieved by having you there. And so the better request isn't get me out of here. It's accomplish your purpose for why I'm here. And then when that purpose is complete, do you think he'll leave you in the, in the tough spot? Well, if there's no more purpose for you being there, then he'll have additional purposes elsewhere. Okay? Once this assignment is done. How many people have... Remember a whole... Uh, Oh, what were their names? The, the, the two craftsmen in the Old Testament that created the high priest garments and crea- built the furnishings for the tabernacle, right? Start with an O, a whole uh, something. Anyway, unpronounceable Hebrew names. You know, after they were gifted and after they did that ministry and after they, they did all that, um, has God since that point of time continued to bestow the gift of tabernacle building? Uh, since that time, has he blessed craftsmen with special skill for the, the uh, sewing of the, of the high priest garments and so forth? No, he doesn't. He no longer provides that because the purpose for that is complete. It would be insane. It would be ludicrous to continue, for God to continue doing something that no longer has a purpose uh, on this earth. Likewise, your testing, when it's accomplished his purpose and there remains no additional purpose for it, He's done with that, and he will bring it to an ekbasis. That's what ekbasis is, the victorious conclusion. Translated way of escape. It's the victorious conclusion to every realm of testing. So the Father's glory is the achievement of the Father's purpose. He says, for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The Father's glory is the achievement of his purpose. By the way, that's also a definition of the Father's sovereignty. Different people define sovereignty in different ways. I like the Bible's definition. He accomplishes all his good pleasure. No one can thwart him. No one can stay his hand. He accomplishes all his good pleasure. That's sovereignty. That's sovereignty. All his good pleasure, he does. And this includes the Father's purpose for creating volitional spheres of creation. And all of those verses there that speak of volition, I hope you understand them. They are They are significant. Uh, God loves the cheerful giver. That's his good pleasure. It cannot be under compulsion. God does not love compulsion. If God loved compulsion, then uh, uh, he would not have created as he created. But he loves the the cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9-7. Goodness has to be not by compulsion, but of your own free will in Philemon uh, 14. Otherwise, it's not goodness. 1 Peter 5.2, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight voluntarily, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. 1 Peter 5.2 is, I mean, all of these are pretty blatant. Compulsion is not the will of God. Voluntarily is the will of God. And also 1 Chronicles 29, verses 17 through 19, speaking of the free will gifts that were given. On top and beyond, above and beyond all of the required sacrifices in the Old Testament were the free will uh, volitional offerings that, uh, that they were delighted to give. This patriological prayer focus is going to be repeated right up to and including the crucifixion. It comes back to it again in Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew 26. Matthew 26. So he has victory here. 
in John 12. What shall I say? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Victory. And you would think, okay, Jesus has a victory. He's not going to get tested in that again. Not so. He gets tested the next day. He gets tested the next day. He gets tested the next day. And he will, this will be a daily test right up to the very moment of, uh, of hanging on the cross. So Matthew 26, Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. He has 11 disciples at this point. Judas is already out betraying him. He's got 11. He has eight of them set here at the entrance to the garden. And then he takes three of them deeper into to pray with him. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. This is an intensification of what we read in John 12. It's gotten worse since Tuesday. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Again, voicing an alternative, hypothetical, saying, Father, is there anything you can do? Yet not as I will, but as you will. So he has this uh, test again. Um goes back, finds him sleeping. You men couldn't keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's talking about himself. He's talking about himself. His human spirit and his human and his flesh. Okay? Not his carnality, but his flesh, his humanity. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And there's the victory. But you consider alternatives when your soul is troubled. The answer is you reject the, the sinning alternatives and you surrender yourself to God's will. doesn't mean you have to like it. <laughs> and I think it's fine to be honest with the Lord and say, Father, I don't like this, but your will be done. I like, I like obeying. I like pleasing the Father. I like glorifying the Father. And so if this is the way that that's going to happen, then thank you, Father. And so, again, he came and he found them sleeping. This time he doesn't even wake them up and, and chew them out. He just lets them sleep and he leaves them again, goes away and prays a third time, saying the same thing once more. Saying the same thing once more. So he has his victory three different times on this final night. And then he uh, allows himself to be arrested. Chapter 27, verse 46. Next chapter over. More uh, prayer to the Father. More of the communication of a soul that feels abandoned. From the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth, this is so we would say noon to three o'clock in the afternoon. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22. And I believe he quoted the entire Psalm, not just verse 1. But he continues to be focused to the Father in prayer, even while hanging on the cross, before they nailed him, after they nailed him, while he's hanging there, before he dies, as he dies. He continues to stay in prayer and he continues to be focused on the Father, even when the Father has turned his back turned his back in darkness to uh, not look upon the sin that our Savior was bearing. 
Luke 23, 34 and 46. This is why God sent Jesus to the cross and not me. I wouldn't have done this. <laughs> okay. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He maintains his paterological prayer focus. He maintains his, his uh, intercessory ministry. He's an intercessor praying for those that were crucifying him. That's why we're supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the imitation of Christ. And he maintains that focus down to verse 46. Same chapter. It was now about the sixth hour. Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured. The veil of the temple was torn into Okay, so with that, the, the Tetelestai has already been decreed. He's already completed. The spiritual death is done. He's actually restored to spiritual life already. And uh, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. It was necessary for the physical death to, uh, to complete his total work there on the cross. John 19.30. You understand when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he's already spiritually alive once again. The time of spiritual death is over. Okay? He doesn't rise from the grave until Sunday, physically. But when does he, re- when does he receive his spiritual life back? Okay? I used to think, years ago, before I studied it and even thought about much about it, I used to think that, well, he died spiritually, he died physically, and he got them both back Easter Sunday. He walked out of the grave physically alive and spiritually alive once again. But then after studying it and considering it and questioning and pondering, I started to realize this very statement here, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's saying this. He's already spiritually alive. He's, saying, he's not saying this in a spiritually dead way. He's not saying, Father, I give you my dead human spirit. When he says to Telestai, he's spiritually alive. When he says it is finished, he's spiritually alive. We will, uh, we're going to have a lot of work to do on this coming up. But uh, make no mistake about it. He is praying to his father in a spiritually alive fashion when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. John 19.30. Here's our Tetelestai. And it's interesting, he's committing Mary into John's safekeeping. Behold your mother, and from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. He has four brothers, but he's not going to allow any of them to, to care for their mother because they're all unbelievers. And so he gives his mother into the hands of, into the hands of John. And the brothers do get saved here shortly after the resurrection, but um, while he's on the cross, they're still unsaved. So after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I'm thirsty. And in a jar, I thirst. That's the basis of that song we like so much and the cathedral saying. Then um, verse 30, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. But these are the statements 
of Jesus spiritually alive to tell us that it is finished. I appreciate that. Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Let's look at this. Written by David a thousand years before Christ. The real mystery is what did David experience to uh, cause him to write this? I think David was crucified in a vision. I ponder whether it was just simply a night vision, a dream uh, that 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 uh, God gave to David. But I think David saw the cross in the first person. And uh, he either, uh, I've, I've pondered whether this was just simply a dream in the first person where he hung on the cross and experienced what Christ will experience a thousand years later. Or did, uh, because we know Ezekiel got brought forward through space and time to tour the millennial temple, did David get brought forward through space and time? And was he actually present with Christ on the cross? Did he not witness himself on the cross, but he witnessed Jesus on the cross uh, in the first person? Um, no way to prove it one way or the other, but it's a question I plan on asking when I get to uh, be face to face. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. By the way, it shows you the general ignorance most of the population had related to their, even their own Hebrew language. Uh, the bulk of them were Aramaic speakers by, the, by this time. And they, they didn't know he was quoting Psalm 22. They thought he was calling out for Elijah. They, they were pretty clueless. Um, oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Of course, night came pretty quickly when it descended at noon on that, uh, on that cross. Yet you are holy. You are holy. All right, you're not listening. You're not, you've forsaken me. You're not answering. Um, yet you are holy. He's not going to stop praying. He's not going to stop citing Scripture. He's not going to stop cycling the doctrine through his soul. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. And so um, it's it's the basis for encouragement. It's the basis for hope. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Indeed, no one who trusts upon the Lord will be disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with a the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And this was reflected in the taunting of the, the folks there around the cross. Come down off the cross. Let's see if the Father rescues him. Let's see if the Father delights in him. He kept calling God his own Father. Well, let's see if he does anything for him. And uh, part of that, I think, was just simply jealousy or anger or or wickedness on the part of people. But I also recognize that at a certain point, I believe at a certain point when he was up there on the cross, I think the, the light bulb finally clicked for Satan and he finally realized, wait a minute. (laughs) And so then he starts taunting, come down, come down, come down. The temptation to try to get him to voluntarily not complete what it was that he was doing up there on that cross. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. 
And we're not only humans of the cross, surrounded by elect angels, fallen angels. We're going to study that here in John 12. We're going to see how it is that now is the uh, adversary cast out. Um, we get on down to, um, and I hesitate to read the entire chapter, but I also hesitate to skip a single verse. <laughs> they open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. But I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I mean, a thousand years before the cross. And also, I should point out, prior to crucifixion even being a uh, execution method. Developed by the Persians, later uh, perfected and refined, uh, perfected, refined and uh, and uh, adapted by the Romans. The Romans became the champions of uh, crucifixion. But a thousand years before Christ, there wasn't an ancient nation that was practicing crucifixion. And yet there it is. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That seems contradictory, doesn't it? It seems like two different things there. You know, are they splitting up my clothes or are they, are they casting lots? The truth is they did both. More prayer in verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. This is why I believe he didn't just stop with verse 1. I think he cited the entire psalm and made it his prayer to the Father. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. From the horns of the wild ox, and you answer me. Now, here he's making his request in 19 through 21, and he assumes the answer has already been given. Verse 22 has the confidence that the Father has answered this prayer already. He says, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. He's already anticipating what his hallelujah thanksgiving prayers are going to be after the Father gets him through the cross. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Brethren is the humanity side. The assembly is the um, angelic side. That's the assembly of the uh, Elohim, of the gods in the heaven, the, the angels in heaven. Well, verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. What vows did Christ make? All right. This patriological prayer focus. And this is what we need to imitate. This is what we need when, when we go through our own testing, when we have our own soul trouble. Just take it back to the Father. Say, Father, glorify your name. Accomplish your good pleasure. All right. Point B then. Back to sub point B under point two. The Father answered Jesus' prayer with an encouraging affirmation that Jesus could use to edify the confused crowd. The Father answers, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The Father answered Jesus' prayer with an encouraging affirmation that Jesus could use to edify the confused crowd. He has this answer. He says, Father, glorify your name. And the answer comes from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again.
and these poor, confused onlookers. <laughs> was that thunder? Was that an angel? An angel must have spoken to him. That was thunder. Hmm. Verses 28 and 29. And yet Jesus is going to say, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. And he says, the encouraging answer, the Father just reaffirmed for me. Now I have a chance to teach you some more things. And I can teach you about angelic conflict. Judgment is upon this world. The ruler of this world will be cast out. Because Jesus Christ is going to be obedient and go to the cross. The ruler of this world is going to be cast out. Opportunity here. All right. The Father's answer reminded Jesus of previous glorification and promised glorification. It's almost like the Father is saying, when have I ever let you down? <laughs> have I ever let you down before? Have I ever failed you? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Previous and promised. Previous glorification, just a chapter earlier in John 11. And a promised glorification. There's a couple of them coming up. In fact, there's more than that. John 11. Sister sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. It was an opportunity to glorify the Son. It was an opportunity to show the uh, inhabitants around Jerusalem, around Bethany, all around in Judea there as the cross was approaching, that Jesus Christ had authority over life and death. And so uh, the sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Down to verse 40 of the same chapter. Jesus said, Remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. You ever seen a four day old corpse? In Kuwait City, we had a corpse for four days and we weren't allowed to move him. He was evidence of an uh, of, uh, illegal execution that took place. In. Uh, we didn't do it. Uh, it was a Kuwaiti that uh, murdered a, an Iraqi that had been brought to us for interrogation. And then um, CID got involved and the investigators. And, and then for four days, that corpse stayed um, in the desert sun, <laughs> the, the hot Kuwaiti sun. And, oh, it was the nastiest thing I've ever smelled on planet Earth. So... I can appreciate Martha's sentiment here. But Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. So similar to what we're seeing today, there's onlookers, there's confused people. And Jesus has a prayer ministry going on with the Father, and He knows the Father's going to hear Him. And He knows there's going to be an answer. In chapter 11, the answer was Lazarus walking out of the tomb. In chapter 12, the answer was the Father's own voice. Booming from the heavens, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So here's a previous glorification, and we see it here. And so when He had said these things, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. 
So there's the previous glorification. He says, I'm going to glorify it again. He's going to do so again and again and again. Not only in time, but for all eternity. John 13. Verses 31 and 32. He's uh, partaking of the Passover meal with his disciples, including his betrayer. And he tells both Judas and Satan in verse 27, what you do, do quickly. And uh, again, clueless disciples. Some were supposing that because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the poor or for the feast, or you should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. And therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified. The father promised it, said I both glorified it and I will glorify it again. And he does so Thursday night at Passover. When Jesus cries volitionally, Receives the morsel from Judas. Right? And um, hmm, says, what you do, do quickly. Judas walks out. Jesus passed the test. Another, another victory. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. And if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself. There is future glory and will glorify Him immediately. We'll detail that when we get to this point. Over to chapter 17. Notice all these pages are red. You have a red letter Bible? Okay, so from 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. uh, Practically the whole section here is all Jesus and his discourse. Here's his high priestly prayer in chapter 17. Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And you'll note, verse 4, he says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. That's, that doesn't include the cross. Okay? That's the purpose for his life. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Remember, he laid aside his glory to come to this earth. But he's going to get that glory back (laughs) and more. See, more. He'll have an even greater glory because of what he achieves in victory at the cross. And this is what he's actually going to bestow upon us. And we'll see that here in a moment. So previous and promised. Previous and promised. And that's a huge pattern because we have the same pattern. The dual reality mirrors that of the bride of Christ. We have both a previous and a promised glorification ourselves. You and I have a previous and promised glorification ourselves. The previous glorification references the positional glorification that takes place in the moment of our salvation. John 17:22 and Romans 8:30. The promised glorification speaks of what we're going to share with Christ when we're present with him in uh, in heaven. John 17:24 and Romans 8 verses 17 and 21. So the dual reality of the Savior with both a previous and promised glorification relates to us. We have a previous and a promised glorification. Since I'm in John, let's look at 17, 22, and then down to 24. And you'll see both of them pretty close to each other. You'll see what I'm talking about. 
He says in John 17:22, "The glory which you have given me, I have given to them." It's already been given. It's a previously given glory that they may be one just as we are one. It's a glory of being united together in one body. It's the, it's the glory of unity in the body of Christ. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Now, this is future. So that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. So there's the past glory. There's a future glory that's going to come when we're, when we're in heaven. Why do we call it glory? We talk about going to heaven. We talk about going to glory. Our departed saints that are in heaven, are where are they? They're in glory. They're in the glory and the joy of our Master. The book of Romans likewise teaches this dual reality. Romans 8. Now the past already accomplished glory is uh, the positional glory in, in verse 30. These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. All those activities taking place before the foundation of the world. All of these, the eternal divine decree of our Father. And we have the glory simultaneously with our predestination, our calling. The events that happen there in verse 30. Our justification. But then the future glory is going to come. Notice verse 17, verse 21 of Romans 8. Heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we also be glorified with Him. There's the future glory that will happen as the reward for our sufferings here on earth. That's why the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared. Are you kidding me? A little earthly suffering now for eternal glory? Can't even compare them. Verse 21. The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Doug, I think we're getting a delivery out there. Can you go get that? Appreciate it. It's kind of strange. We're not supposed to get any deliveries in this building. So we have a dual reality. Thirdly, the observing crowd thought the Father's voice was either thunder or an angel. The observing crowd thought the Father's voice was either a thunder or an angel. So Jesus had to explain to them, no, the ruler of this world is being cast out. Victory is being achieved in the angelic conflict. He's disarming the rulers and the authorities. Exodus 19, 19, we see that God and the angels both thunder with their voices. Revelation 6, 1, there's thunder in the voices. I think there's a lot of, um, and of course in mythology, all the ancients thought that thunderstorms were the gods fighting or talking or different things that were happening there. Um, but how much of the, the pagan mythology actually has a basis in the reality of, of Scripture? In that his ministers are winds, his servants are flaming fires. We talk about tornadoes and hurricanes and windstorms and fires and lightning strikes and things. And, and we, we call those natural phenomena, right? Acts of nature. Are they acts of nature or are they acts of angels? Scripture says in many cases they're angels. All right. Point C. The message from the Father... 
explained by the Son. The message from the Father and through the Son communicated the eternal victory over sin and death. Communicated the eternal victory over sin and death. And universal drawing unto life. And I know I'm not going to explain this very well in seven minutes. So um, let's just look at it and then we'll build on it next week. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Isn't it amazing? The, the, the Messiah came to accomplish everything in the Father's plan. And the Jews didn't want most of it. Right? Pretty much the only thing they wanted was political freedom from the Roman Empire. You know? And if, if, if Jesus could do that, and, and he could sit on, then they would let him sit on the throne of David. Um, if, uh, if he fed them with that multiplied bread, then they would put him on the throne of David. Uh, but they had such a, a, a selfish view of what the Christ was supposed to even be or what the Christ was supposed to do. The idea of crushing the serpent's head, even though they'd been promised all the way from Genesis 3, that didn't, didn't even cross their mind. They didn't want, want to have anything to do with that, didn't understand the first part of that. It wasn't, uh, wasn't anywhere on their radar at all. But it's part of what was accomplished on the cross. Even deliverance from sin. You would think they would at least be thankful for that, right? Most of them had no, no uh, concept. They were, they were looking for political freedom from the Roman Empire. And I find that interesting. All right the eternal victory over sin and death, and the universal drawing unto life. Verse 31 has the victory. Verse 32 has the drawing. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. The universal drawing. And this is part of what we uh, have to consider in our role as heralds, in our role as evangelists, in our role as um, uh, ministers of reconciliation. Who is it that needs to hear the gospel message? Everybody. Uh, who is it that, um, well, we're going to talk about this. Part of what we, we deal with when we consider distinctions between limited and unlimited atonement. When we consider the idea that not everybody's going to get saved, but everybody should be invited. Everybody should be preached to. Everybody should have the good news proclaimed to them. See, what's the nature of, of uh, the universal call? And does it, uh, does it coincide with the universal drawing? I will draw all men to myself. Now, uh, we'll, we'll take some time. We'll spell this out because um, Calvinists, of course, don't like this or, or they, they try to rewrite it. Um, they, want, they don't like all being all, and so they find other ways to define all. But we're going to talk about how the Father draws in John 6 and how Jesus draws in John 12. And how does John 6 connect to John 12? And how does it apply to our role as ambassadors in this, in this fallen world? Because it, it has tremendous bearing. And I think it's the, the genius behind uh, Lewis Barry Schaefer and, and um, true evangelism. You know, you're completely dependent upon the Father's drawing, the Son's drawing, and the Holy Spirit's convicting. God's the one that's doing the work. We're simply the, the tools in His hands to, to, uh, to preach that message. So... Stay tuned for uh, stay tuned for that. All right, there are some subpoints on this, and then D, and then three, and more ground to gain. I think um, 
we'll bring it back to this point. But then we have to get on down through the um, confusion here where we have heard that the, in the law that Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And the idea that uh, one thing they knew about the Messiah was that he was eternal. And when he showed up, he was going to last forever. What do you mean he's going to die? So uh, we'll have to tackle that as well. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for this day and the time that we have together in the Word of God. And we pray, Father, as we continue to study these chapters in particular, Father, um, this is kind of the conclusion of what he addresses to the crowds. And very quickly, he's going to go into the upper room and have a very private discourse in chapters 13 through 17 that uh, has some powerful application for us here in the church today. So we're eager to learn these lessons. We're eager to glean from them. Father, I pray that you would help us to approach every text uh, without uh, prejudice or, or preconceptions. And Father, allow us to uh, to study what... Uh, what your word says for what it says. And I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.